Hi, my name is Chris Jensen, and this is my life, and welcome to it. I never know what a week's going to bring. I spent a lot of time thinking about the theme for each episode and where I'm taking it and where it's going. Um, and I realized that at the last episode where I was talking about uh, the Gospel of Thomas, that I've jumped ahead a bit. So um, I'm going to spend some time talking about many of the things that I learned and did um, during my time with Elijah and going down to the Garden of Enchantment, he um, he uh, taught me many things and he exposed me to other teachings and various, um, just, I don't know, maybe strange things when I think about it that I, that I ended up doing. Um, but I have found myself in a very different headspace uh, this week. And I decided that instead of continuing on with uh, my life and chasing after God, that I would jump back to something I said I would do occasionally, and that uh, it happens to be Tea Time Tales. This particular story is titled The Spider, and you may not remember this, but uh, each story begins with a short poem, and this one begins this way. Where are you going to, spider, spider? You run like a horse that has lost its rider. I'm going around the world, said he, and nobody's going to hinder me. Where have you been to, spider, spider? His eyes were brighter, his smile was wider. Round the whole of the world, he said, and some of it's blue and some of it's red. And the title of the story is The Spider Who Went Round the World. There once was a little spider who lived with his mother in the timbered roof of a big library. His mother was very wise indeed. Of course, it is a great advantage to live in a library. Clever people used to come there and talk, and the old spider would sit quietly in the rafters and listen. She had learned to read, too. And it was said that she had read the names on the backs of all the books in the library. And you can learn a lot, quite a lot, from reading the names on the backs of books, you know. Her children were not so clever as she was, and the one about whom I am going to tell this tale was really rather stupid. But he thought he was a very clever fellow, and he was sure he knew a good deal more than most people. He was always wanting to leave home on a journey of adventure, 
but his mother wouldn't let him. She was afraid that his want of brains might land him in difficulties. I want to see the world, he would say. I want to see if it is really so wonderful and great as people say. I should like to go right round it and find out for myself whether all the travelers' tales are true. They make a great fuss about it, but who knows how much of it they may be making up. Do let me go, mother. I should be back in no time. Foolish child, his mother would say. It would be quite impossible for a little spider like you to go round the world. It takes even human beings many, many months to do it. It would take you years and years. Indeed, you would die long before you got halfway. But the little spider didn't believe his mother. Some day I shall go, he said to his friends up among the rafters. You will see. One day the mother spider died, and her son determined to start out on his travels at once. He had very vague ideas as to how he was going to set about it. But he said goodbye to his brothers and sisters and friends in the jauntiest way imaginable, and let himself down from the roof onto the space below without turning a hair. He wasn't very wise, but he certainly had courage. Now there was a large globe in the corner of the library, a great big thing on a stand, and it so happened that it was upon this that the little spider alighted. He was feeling a little dizzy after his long descent and did not know in the least where he was. There was a wooden knob at the top of the globe, and on this knob the spider sat and rested. Presently he began to look about. He could see some writing in very big letters arranged in a circle not far from his resting place. A-R-C-T-I-C-O-C-E-A-N, he spelled out. Great heaven, said the spider. I declare I'm at the top of the world, and that is the Arctic Ocean. Goodness knows how I got here, but here I am. That's plain enough. It just shows what a little spirit will do. It's really not a bit difficult to get to the top of the world after all. I dare say I'm sitting on the North Pole at this very moment. Oh, how I wish my poor mother were here to see me. But the little spider did not sit there long. He was all impatient to be off on his journey round the world, which had started, he felt, in such a fortunate way. He crawled carefully down from the wooden knob and found one of the lines of longitude stretching out in front of him. "'I know what this is,' said the little spider. "'I have heard of this. This is one of those things called telegraph wires.' They stretch all over the world. What a good thing I am a spider and have learned to crawl on a narrow wire. Men have to have boats, but a telegraph wire does very well for me. Which shows what a very stupid little spider he was, mistaking a line of longitude for a telegraph wire. 
he crawled on until he came to Norway and Sweden, and from there went all over Europe, noticing a good many well-known names on the way. But he thought it all very uninteresting. The globe was one on which the mountains were raised up, but he hadn't the slightest trouble in climbing over them, not even the Alps. Whenever he came to the edge of the sea, and he always knew because it was blue, he looked out for a black thread, and so he never found out that the sea wasn't wet at all. As for the rivers, he made up his mind that they must have all gone dry. He crawled across Europe and into India by way of Persia, and finally went across the Pacific on the equator. It was marked on the globe by three fine lines, which he again mistook for telegraph wires. He never stopped to think how telegraph wires could stretch over the top of such a big piece of water. He really was a very ignorant little spider, wasn't he? But after all, he had lived in the rafters all his life and hadn't the advantages you and I have had. He landed in South America and then went across the Atlantic to Africa. He got a bit lost in Africa and wandered about for quite a long time in the desert of Sahara. When he found out where he was, he was quite thrilled. This is an adventure, he thought. This is what I have read about. I have been lost in the great desert. That is really very exciting. Perhaps when I get home, I shall write a book about it. And he crawled back again to Europe, feeling very pleased with himself. When he got to the North Pole again, he found that the thread on which he had come down was still there, which was lucky for him, for indeed I don't know how he would have otherwise have reached his home again. He wasn't sorry to be back. It's always very nice to be in your own place again and to be able to rest after a journey. And just think how wonderful it was for him to be able to tell his brothers and sisters that he had actually been round the world. The rumor spread quickly, and soon all his friends came crowding in to hear the marvelous news. Is it really true, they said? Have you really been round the world? How splendid! What is it like? It's a difficult journey, of course, the spider said, and rather dangerous. I got lost in the desert of Sahara once, and some of the mountains were rather nasty. Still, I managed all right in the end. But it's all very much overrated. One country is very much like another, excepting that they are of different colors. And the North Pole isn't cold at all. That's quite a mistake. I shall probably write about it to the Royal Geographical Society. They ought to be told. I don't think he ever did write. He settled down in his old home, and gradually he grew big and fat and lost his taste for adventure. But he loved to talk about his travels, and as time went on he would add on a bit here and there. You know how people do. Until in the end he made quite a wonderful tale of it, particularly the part where he got lost in the desert of the Sahara. 
He was very much respected. Mother and father spiders would point him out to their children. He was a great traveler in his youth, they would say. He went round the world. But nobody ever found out that he had only been round the library globe. And after all, it didn't really make very much difference. Now, did it? Our next story is titled The Cat, with a poem by the same title. The strangest thing that ever was seen happened to Diggory, Diggory Green. The strangest thing that ever befell, and all on account of a magic spell. Diggory Green lived long ago, and yet you never can really know. You never can know you never can say. A thing like that might happen today. If it should happen to me or to you, dearie, dearie, what shall we do? The Cap More than two hundred years ago there lived in London a workman called Diggory Green. He was a builder's laborer and a good, steady man quiet in his ways and reliable in his work. But wages were not very high in those days, and he had a family of ten children. A family as big as that takes a lot of keeping, and Diggory was never able to put by a penny, though he had an industrious, hard-working wife whose name was Patience. I should think she needed some patience with all those babies to look after. Diggory was employed, together with a great many other workmen, on the great new church of St. Paul's, which was being built in place of the old one, which had been destroyed by the great fire. One windy day, as he stood on one of the outer galleries looking over the town, a sudden gust caught his cap, which was a fairly new one, and blew it far, far away over the housetops, so that there was no hope of his ever seeing it again. Patience was very vexed when he came home and told her. You'll have to go without a cap, she said. We have not a penny to buy another at this moment, and we shall need all the money you bring at the end of the week for food and rent. I cannot go without a cap, said Diggory. The men will jeer at me. And besides, I need it to protect my head when I carry a heavy load. Well, then, I must make one, said Patience. And she started at once to search for a piece of cloth to make a cap for her husband. In those days, workmen's caps were made of four triangular pieces of cloth all joined together, with the points meeting at the top. Patience, after some searching, found a piece of cloth which he thought would do to make a cap of, but it was not quite en large enough. One little bit was wanting. Search as she would, she could not find another bit of cloth. Any little piece of good stuff which she had was always needed for patching the children's clothes. 
At last, in the corner of a drawer, she came upon a little cloth bag tied up with a red cord and tassels, which had been given her, she remembered, by her grandmother, long ago, when she was a little girl. Now this bag had been given to Patience's grandmother, who came from Ireland, by a wise woman who lived in that country, and there was magic in it. There were queer letters worked on it. Patience could neither read nor write, but in any case, she would not have been able to understand what was written on the bag, for the letters were strange, and the language even stranger. But this is what the writing amounted to. Whoso carries me about, when he speaks, the truth will out. It seemed rather a pity to cut up the little bag, but, after all, thought Patience, it is not really big enough to be of much use, and it is big enough to supply the piece I want for Diggory's cap. So she cut up the bag and finished the cap, and Diggory went to work in it the very next day. Now, as it happened, Diggory was a very truthful man, more so than most. Also, he was not a great talker, so that he wore the cap for a little time before anything awkward happened. But one day, one of the workmen said to him, as they were sitting eating their bread and cheese at dinner time. Well, Diggory, what are you thinking about? Now, this man had ears that stood out from his head. I was thinking, said Diggory, that your ears, with the light shining through them, were as bright as any of these stained-glass windows they make so much talk about. The man was quite angry, and nothing would do but that he and Diggory should fight. So they fought it out in the churchyard, and Diggory got a black eye and a bruised nose, though he had the best of it on the whole. "'What made you say a thing like that?' said his wife when he told her. "'I'm sure I know not,' said Diggory. "'I own I was thinking it, and out it came before I could stop it.' "'You had best be careful,' said Patience. Next time you have a mind to say things such as that, remember your black eye. A few days later, the overseer was looking at the work the men were doing. He stood and watched Diggory and another man putting a plank into position. You are not putting in that plank the right way, he said. Do you not see it should be placed so? And he showed them how he thought the plank should lie. There, he said. Is that not better? No, said Diggory. What, said the overseer? Do you think you know better than I do? Yes, said Diggory. I've done this work ever since I was a lad. You have done not for many years, but watch other men work. Is it likely that you should know better than I? The overseer was a good-natured man, and he burst into a laugh. Well, you are an odd fellow, he said, and a blunt one. Maybe you are right, but I would advise you not to be quite so outspoken. Everyone is not so easygoing as I am. That tongue of yours will be getting you into trouble if you are not careful. 
and he passed on. Diggory went on with his work. He felt a bit troubled. He had never meant to speak like that to the overseer. It seemed, as he had told patients before, as if he said the words in spite of himself. He never thought of his cap. How should he? A few days later, as he was busy working in a corner by himself, he heard voices behind him. Turning round, he saw a smallish, slender man with a wise, friendly face, who had with him a bright-eyed girl in a plumed hat and silken gown. Diggory knew at once that it was Sir Christopher Wren, the great architect who had planned the church. He often came to see how the work was going and nearly always had with him his daughter Jane. It was well known how dearly he loved her. Diggory pulled off his cap and stood with it in his hand. But even so, he was still obliged to speak the truth. Sir Christopher asked him questions about himself and about his work, how many years he had been working in the cathedral, how he liked his job, and so on. All these questions Diggory answered simply and truthfully, as he would have done in any case. And what, said Sir Christopher, think you of my cathedral now that it is nearly finished? I think, said Diggory, that it is a fine church and beautiful to look at. But I think, as many of us here do, that you have not built it on a safe foundation, Sir Christopher, and that a day will come, maybe in a hundred, maybe in two hundred years, when it will begin to give way. That will be a sad day for the people of London, Sir Christopher. How dare you, said Sir Christopher's daughter, and she actually stamped her pretty foot. How dare you, who are but a common workman, say such things to my father, whom everyone knows to be the wisest and most wonderful man in the whole world. Diggory stood with bent head. How dared he indeed? Now he would be dismissed. It would serve him right for not knowing how to hold his foolish tongue. But Sir Christopher only smiled. Nay, nay, Jane, he said. I asked the man for his opinion, and he gave it honestly. What more can a man do? I think he is mistaken. I hope with all my heart that he is, but neither he nor I will ever know. From his pocket he pulled out a crown piece, gave it to Diggory, and passed on. Diggory could hear his daughter's pretty voice talking eagerly to him as they went down the steps that took them to the floor of the cathedral. He looked at the crown in his hand and then at his cap. It seems as if since the day patience made me this cap that I've been taken with this queer way of speaking what's in my mind, he thought. He turned the cap round and round. It looked harmless enough. True, it had a queer little patch on one side, but a patch and a cap shouldn't play a man tricks of that sort. At the dinner hour, Diggory suggested to his friend Peter that there might be something queer about the cap. 
We'll soon find out, said Peter, who was a very practical person. We'll all put it on in turn, and the man who wears it shall be asked questions. We shall quickly see if there is magic in your cap to make a man say strange things. That was an exciting dinner hour, I can tell you. Each man who wore the cap spoke the truth about himself and his neighbor. I think the matter might again have ended in blows had not Diggory suddenly seized the cap and thrown it up high among the rafters. It has done harm enough, he said. There let it stay, lest it do worse. And there it remained for many long, long years, for that part of the roof was finished, and no one had occasion to go up among the dark timbers. Now if you doubt the truth of my story, you have only go to go to the library of St. Paul's Cathedral and ask to see the workman's cap, which was found a little time ago up in the rafters. It is kept in a glass case together with other things, and there is a little ticket with it, telling you how and where it was found. But I don't suppose for a moment that the folk in charge of it know all its strange history, nor the dangerous power which it possesses. Perhaps the dean of St. Paul's knows, for he is a very wise man, but he may not, at any rate, it is quite safe in the glass case, and nobody is likely to wear it or even to hold it for any length of time, which is perhaps just as well. As to the foundations, well, people are busy at this very moment doing all they can to make them stronger in order that the great cathedral may be safe. So Diggory did speak the truth, you see. My Life and Welcome to It is produced by me, Chris Jensen. My technical consultant is David Patterson of Drowning Man Productions. David, along with three others, have a podcast called Wasting All the Time, and they provide improvisational comedy uh, for us to listen to. I would encourage you to check them out. The art for My Life and Welcome to It uh, is drawn by Dave Edwards. And if you're interested in any of other, uh, Dave's other art, um, you can find him on Instagram at EvilDaveTM. You can find this podcast wherever podcasts 
can be found. And I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email me at mlawti101 at gmail.com. The music for Chasing After God, which is part of my life and welcome to it, is Skywards by Will Van de Cromert. Well, that's all for now. I look forward to spending some time with you again next Saturday. And until then, be safe, be well, and God bless.